Hello, friends. We are popping into your podcast feed unexpectedly to share with you chapter one from the audiobook for our new book, Now What? How to Move Forward When We're Divided, about basically everything. Recording the audiobook was such a joy because Sarah and I recorded it together. And by that, I don't just mean that our voices are the narration. I mean that we were in studio together, able to laugh together and react to each other. You're going to hear Sarah's tears in places. You're going to hear my need to pause and reflect on words, even when they've already been written down for me in advance. It was a really special experience, and it's really special for us to get to share this chapter with you. So here is chapter one of Now What? published by Ravel. The audiobook is by Tantor Media, and we hope that you will check out the whole book and let us know what you think. Chapter one. Our families of origin don't question grandma and other unwritten rules. In the fall of 2019, Beth and I traveled to California for two live shows, one in San Francisco and one in Los Angeles. My dad has lived in California since I was five years old, and I spent most every summer of my childhood visiting him in the Golden State. However, Beth had never been out west, and I thought taking the Pacific Coast Highway between our two shows would make the most of our short trip. My dad is incredibly generous and loves to drive, so he volunteered to make the trip up and back from Bakersfield, where he lives, in one day. The three of us spent almost 12 hours together in the car, taking in the gorgeous coastline and eating lots of in and out My dad and I both love music, so we also spent a lot of time sharing new bands we'd found and singing along to 90s country, where our tastes consistently converge. It sounds lovely, doesn't it? A devoted father bonding with his daughter, surrounded by a panorama of blue skies and crashing waves, with Garth Brooks serenading us in the background. FYI, our DMs are closed to alternate opinions of Garth Brooks. Of course, the reality is more complicated. At that point in 2019, we were over two years into the Trump presidency. There had been two years of tweets and chaos. There had been two years of anger and fear and frustration for me. My dad voted for Trump proudly, and his continued support for the president had become a constant source of conflict within our relationship. For the majority of our trip, we steered clear of politics as most American families were at least attempting to do at that point, if they were still talking at all. But Beth's presence and her recent change in party registration from Republican to Democrat was something my dad couldn't ignore. He knew where I stood after all, but he seemed sincerely curious about where Beth was and how she got there. So on occasion, a rather intense exchange on politics would surface as we made our way down the coast. It was like an episode of The View crossed with a car commercial. I remember we talked about Hillary Clinton, of course, and immigration and race. It was like the greatest hits of polarized politics with the greatest hits of Reba, Shania, and Trisha playing in the background. We didn't solve anything on that trip. My dad ended the day just as devoted to Trump as when he began, and I ended it just as disgusted with Trump as when we began. It was fun, and it was also stressful, which can describe almost every single family gathering, in my opinion. However, it was best observation afterward that helped me see my dad and our relationship with new eyes. She said after watching us in the car for all those hours, she realized that my dad and I had different expectations when it came to conflict. I expected the presence of conflict and was fine holding the tension of that disagreement. I knew she was right. I don't expect us to come to a compromise and agreement when we talk politics. I would be lying if I said I don't want to influence my dad, 
but I have no expectation of fundamentally changing him or his opinions when it comes to Trump or anything else political. However, she also said that my dad did not expect the presence of conflict, and therefore the tension of the disagreement was really hard on him. Not until she pointed that out did I realize how right she was. My dad seems genuinely confused and hurt when I see things differently than him. He uses the word disrespect a lot. He often thinks I'm angry with him when I'm not. It is as if he expects a healthy relationship to not have any conflict. Unfortunately, that's not how I operate. Since that trip, I've tried to remember that our political disagreement doesn't exist in a vacuum. Like Reba and Garth on the best road trip, our different expectations of each other are always playing in the background. Before we belong to ourselves, we belong to the people who raise us. Before we can form the conscious thoughts that are the building blocks of our identity, we belong to our parents and to our families of origin. Belonging to our families of origin is that first connection. It is the sense that we belong as members of this, our first and most important group. Belonging is essential because we are dependent on our families for our very survival. As babies, that belonging is as basic as food and shelter. But if we learn the importance of belonging through our dependence on our families as vulnerable infants, we soon realize that belonging to our families also meets deeper and more complicated emotional needs. Belonging helps us find value in life, cope with painful experiences, improve our motivation, and know that we aren't alone. It all starts with our families. From the people who raise us, we learn what to value, how to be in relationships, and what patterns of behavior help us thrive. The warmth, security, and boundaries of our caregivers shape our development in conscious and unconscious ways for the rest of our lives. If we have siblings, they shape our understanding of our own strengths, our conflict styles, and our resilience. Our families of origin make us who we are, and that's why a breakdown in those connections hurts so badly. Although it always feels unique, personal, and urgent, Political conflict within families is not new. These conflicts have long been fertile ground for storytellers and screenwriters. Political divisions have been depicted in Shakespearean drama, in the bunkers battling over civil rights on All in the Family, and in Alex P. Keaton's decision to join the Reagan Revolution on Family Ties. Today, shows like Blackish tackle complex and conflicting generational attitudes toward colorism and other issues of identity. And yet, As much as America loves stories about familial conflict, we don't do a very good job showing how to work through those conflicts. There's no laugh track in real life to get us through awkward moments at the dinner table when our great aunt says something racist. There are no closing credits to cue us into a neat and tidy resolution to the latest fight over a viral YouTube video. We need something in the era of the politicization of everything— because our families of origin are suffering under the increased weight of partisanship and identity politics. These disagreements have very real consequences. Identity politics are not theoretical, and our politics increasingly say something meaningful about how we value each other. When politics represents who we are, what does it mean when our family disagrees with us? These are the most heartbreaking stories we hear from our community. Fathers who seem like strangers to their daughters, Sons who slowly shut their parents out of their lives. Mothers who wield shame as a weapon to assure party loyalty. Siblings who no longer speak. People who are not accepted as who they are by the people who gave them life. When these divisions infect our families, it can create a crisis around our sense of belonging. It can feel like a problem that we must solve 
and in the process, we can create and endure an enormous amount of suffering. We receive more emails every week about navigating political conflict within families than any other topic. People want us to tell them how to fix it, and we dearly wish we could. We wish we had a formula, an elixir, some way to prescribe adjustments to an attitude here and to media consumption there so that the wheels of communication start turning again. People aren't machines, and the tension among us isn't a math problem. Instead of trying to fix the partisan divides in our families, we are working to try to see them better. We're trying to lift ourselves out of the present, where we're mired in sadness and anger and disbelief, so that we can better understand the dynamics. What's really going on? Different experiences mean different expectations. A decent percentage of our email might as well have the subject line, insert politician or pundit name, is wrecking my family. Whether it's about who we voted for, which cable news channel we default to, or what podcast host gets our listening time, individuals representing partisan positions tend to capture our imaginations and with them, our identities. In our families, this identification leads to conversations and text threads that look like, how could you possibly listen to this garbage? How could you not? You're missing everything. All caps, conversations are rarely helpful. But as we're going to learn over and over in this book, we're actually having two conversations at once. We're not just talking about commentators or channels. We're talking about our relationship with each other and how we're showing up in it. We are working out our conflict styles as much as we are working out our political differences. Some of the disconnection within our families of origin that feels like political disagreement can best be understood as generational conflict. Sometimes when we're raging over a certain politician or commentator, we're actually fighting about different expectations. Lindsay Pollack, an expert on the multi-generational workplace, has spent years examining generations and how they interact, not just in the U.S., but around the globe. I don't think there's any fundamental way that we are different as human beings for being in different generations, she says. It just changes your expectations. Unfortunately, the prolific media coverage of cross-generational conflict often leaves the expectations of each group unexamined. It's never that one generation has different understandings and expectations surrounding race or gender or work, but rather that one generation has an opinion that the other generation sees as wrong. Not to mention, not everyone in a generation feels the exact same way about everything. We were born the same year as Beyonce, but as much as we secretly believe we share a lot in common with Queen Bee, we recognize the babies of 1981 are not a monolith any more than the babies of 1964. Fostering generational conflict might make for some good memes and Saturday Night Live sketches, but oversimplifying that conflict is not serving us. We're missing out on important information about each other. Okay, Boomer, or eye-rolling about Gen Z deprives us of critical context about each other's histories, cohorts, and personal stories. The beauty of each individual human experience is both its uniqueness and its mystery. We will never understand what it was like to birth us feed us, change our diapers, and send us to timeout. This leaves a certain formative amount of loved ones' perspectives unknowable to us. It also leaves us blind to what we can know about the experiences of our caregivers and siblings. How often do we think about how our mother's military service might give her a different perspective on authority than we have? When do we stop to consider whether a brother's concern about our job change reflects the insecurity associated with a traumatic childhood experience? It's easy to forget that our grandparents' experiences in the 1960s informed their perspectives on movements like Occupy Wall Street and defund the police. 
Instead of naming what we know and don't know about each other, many of us tend to operate from the unarticulated expectation that every person in our family shared the same experiences we had and processed those experiences the same way. When we operate from that assumption, it's disorienting that a sibling prefers Fox News to our MSNBC, or that our aunt, who raised us, voted for the Senate candidate we can't stand. The more we can name what we know about all the factors that shape us as people, the more light we can shine on the origins of our political differences. And here's a bonus. The act of telling stories is one of the most connecting experiences we can have. Most of us are bursting with stories we'd love for someone to listen to, perhaps for the 15th time. Even painful, largely untold stories can forge beautiful bonds. These differences extend far beyond our individual experiences. If you feel like your baby boomer father or your Generation Z daughter lives in a different reality, you're not wrong. Our grandmothers grew up without television and with the profound fallout of World War II and the Great Depression, hence best grandmother recycling pieces of aluminum foil. Our parents grew up without the internet and came of age during the traumatic upheaval of the 1960s. Our children will ride in self-driving cars, will view 9-11 as a distant, historic event, and we'll have few, if any, memories of the Trump administration or the COVID-19 pandemic. Making the connection. If you're struggling in a relationship with a family member, spend a moment making a list of things you know about that person. When you look at that list, do you see points that might create a deeper connection between you? Do you see points that might be the source of your differing perspectives? What happens when you do this same exercise while considering a family member you feel genuinely close to? We expect to argue differently or not argue at all. The timing of our births influences so many of our expectations about the world. It also influences our expectations surrounding conflict itself. Where should conflict be present? How should we deal with it? What does conflict mean inside a close family relationship? When I was 11, 11 and three-fourths, I would have insisted, my parents had a second child. My beloved sister, Kimberly, went to kindergarten the year I went to college. On September 11, 2001, I was a junior in college who watched the second plane crash into the World Trade Center and called my dad to ask him what it meant for the world. Kimberly was not yet nine years old. I logged into my first email account as a senior in high school. Kimberly had an online profile from elementary school. The external world isn't the only sphere of profound differences for the two of us. Our mom threw softballs and jumped on the trampoline with me. When Kimberly was young, mom was in the early stages of a severe rheumatoid arthritis diagnosis. Our grandmother, Joy, was my best friend and constant companion growing up. Kimberly would say the same of her, but we experienced very different versions of grandmother Joy because of the impacts of dementia. Kimberly grew up with cousins that I barely know, I remember relatives she never met. I think I saw Kimberly as my baby sister until she was well into adulthood. After all, I loaded her up in my Mercury Topaz and took her to preschool every day. I was in a car accident my junior year of high school that was in some ways a defining event in my life. Five-year-old Kimberly was in the back seat. We experienced that event literally and figuratively from very different seats. When I went to college, Kimberly visited me with dolls in tow. When she went to college, she brought her laundry to my house and babysat my daughter. It wasn't until she married, moved to Chicago, renovated a house, and had her own child that I started seeing her as a peer. Kimberly and I didn't learn to fight with each other. 
because of our age difference, my sister and I didn't have that childhood laboratory of working out disagreements over toys and activities and who hogs the bathroom mirror. I wouldn't change a single dimension of our relationship. Well, I do wish she would move into my neighborhood, but other than that. And yet, as I watch my daughters, who are only four years apart, duke it out every day over the swings and shoes and who touched this coloring book, I find myself wondering what Kimberly and I missed about how to vigorously argue with people and love them anyway. Sometimes I wonder how our lack of practice with conflict will play out as we get older and life gets harder. We love each other fiercely. Do we know how to argue with each other if we truly disagree when difficult decisions about our parents' health or property have to be made? I know we can work through these things. Also, I'm already thinking about how to show Kimberly that I'm her peer. When it's time to make those critical, complex choices, I don't want to be in the big sister role. I want us to be two equals, working together to figure out the best path forward for our family. Some of us grow up in households where sharp words are never uttered. Some of us grow up in households where language and dishes fly. In some households, an argument means prolonged periods of silence and the withholding of affection. In others, raised voices are quickly followed by laughter. In some families, it's seen as completely disrespectful to question an elder. In others, it's seen as intellectually lazy to accept all family orthodoxy. The unwritten rules around who we argue with and how we have those arguments are the results of generations of patterns. These patterns create a set of expectations that we, too, frequently forget to discuss. It's helpful to remember when political topics come up that we are talking about and working on so much more than policy, electoral, or even cultural disagreement. We might be talking about Obamacare, but we are talking around our different understandings of the world and different expectations about conflict. Making the Connection We want to stop talking around those different expectations and start getting to the heart of our disagreements. One way to do that is through storytelling. When we ask each other open-ended and unexpected questions, we can learn more about what's behind the opinions and emotions that can make some of our closest relationships so difficult. As a few examples, if you're talking to a family member about immigration and are surprised at the distance between your stances, you might say, Isn't it interesting that we grew up in the same place, went to church together, know lots of the same people, and still see this so differently? I wonder if there's an experience you remember having that really impacted your views on this. If you're talking about critical race theory, you might say, what is the most important thing you learned about race in school? If you're talking about social welfare programs and how much money should be invested in them, you might say, how have you thought about some of the toughest times in your life? Where have you received the most help? When you haven't received much help, how has that impacted you? Parent-child relationships are filled with unspoken expectations. We have another set of usually unarticulated expectations around why we create families in the first place. It's changed dramatically over time. Both our motivation for having families and our expectations of roles within families have shifted from biological imperative and economic necessity to something more like self-fulfillment and the creation of idyllic childhoods. We're not looking for help on the farm or in the family store. We're sorting out our deep-seated stuff while packing healthy lunches, planning Pinterest-worthy birthday parties, and developing assertive but kind human beings. In all joy and no fun, the paradox of modern parenthood, the parenting book I recommend to all new parents, 
Jennifer Sr. details how children went from being seen as essential farm labor or apprentices in the 19th and early 20th century to parents being essential to their children's overall happiness. Sr. quotes sociologist Viviana A. Zelizer, who describes today's children as economically worthless but emotionally priceless. We keep amping up our expectations around the emotional bonds between parents and their children, which we seem to believe are created by parental attention. A 2016 study quantified this shift. Researchers found that between 1965 and 2012, mothers doubled the time spent with their kids, despite the fact that millions of women joined the workforce and should, in theory, have less time than ever. Fathers today quadrupled the amount of time spent with their children as compared to the fathers of 1965. No one parenting young children today needed the study to explain the intensity of modern parenting, including the meta aspects. We seem to be parenting in a more intense way. Is that good or bad? Are we being too intense about our intensity? Changes in caregiving from one generation to another are usually better understood by examining societal trends than interrogating individual choices. That doesn't stop us from interrogating ourselves and each other and taking those interrogations personally. Parents of adult children might find themselves confused by the passion their children, now parents themselves, bring to screen time rules and nutritional guidelines when they were never concerned by such things. Different approaches in everything from educating children to faith formation can trigger feelings of judgment and disrespect in families. If a daughter makes enormous sacrifices to breastfeed, how should her own mother feel about her choice to formula feed? When we choose a different method of discipline than our parents, are we implicitly critiquing their methods? Parents of grown children say they only want their children to be happy. But what if those same children find happiness only in rejecting the choices of their parents? What we say and what we expect when it comes to parenting are very far apart. These stealth expectations pave the way for resentment before political conflicts ever enter the picture. Those of us raising little humans and investing in every aspect of their development can be righteously indignant about our parents' relative indifference to how their votes, opinions, and media habits affect us. When we are consumed by how every tiny choice reflects on us as parents, how can our own parents seem so immune to how their choices affect us? We can't free ourselves of all the forces that create different expectations among our family members. We can try to see them, label them, and keep them in mind when we're responding to conflict so that when political conflict does enter the room, we are more prepared. Making the connection. One way to reveal stealth expectations is to put the verbal equivalent of floodlights on them. Mom, I know that you work so hard to breastfeed me and that breastfeeding is really important to you. I want you to know that I don't take any of that for granted and I wanna honor the way that you parented me. I'm just choosing a different way of feeding my baby. I've looked at the research and thought hard about what works in our lives. This is not a criticism of what you did or lack of appreciation for it. I just want you to hear from me that we're going in a different direction because of where we are in our lives right now. I know you expected your mom and me to stay together. It's hard to see us divorce when you're in your late 20s. And I can imagine that it makes you wonder if parts of your childhood were a lie. I want to promise you that they weren't. Every memory you have of us as a family is a real memory. We loved each other and you more than we can say. Pop, I know that you don't like it when I disagree with you. I want you to understand how much I respect you. My disagreement is not disrespect. It's the opposite. I know how hard you've worked in your life and how smart you are. I love you so much. 
I just see this differently than you do. And it's important to me that you hear that. It hurts that we disagree, but I think we need to love each other enough to talk about it. Allow for complexities. Although we intellectually know that our family members are going to see the world differently, it is emotionally exhausting when they do. Our expectations of these relationships are enormous and constraining. They don't allow for the kinds of complexities that life is filled with, immigration status, illness or disability, economic stressors, tragedy, or a global pandemic. Just as we bring asymmetrical expectations to the table about whether to fight about politics at all and how to fight if we do, we bring very different social contexts to our political dialogue. If you grew up in the age of Jim Crow, being told that an idea or statement is racist will most likely feel harsher and more personal than if you grew up singing along to Everyone's a Little Bit Racist from Avenue Q. If you grew up during the Kennedy administration when presidential indiscretions were kept a secret, then you will have an experience with respecting the office that someone who grew up during the Clinton administration never had. If you grew up with Walter Cronkite telling almost all Americans the same news from a position of deep trust, then you will most likely feel overwhelmed by the flood of our current news media in a way that someone who grew up post 9-11 will never feel. Despite the deep roots of our biology, most of us grow into very different people from our caregivers and siblings. That's what we're supposed to do. Raising a child is a creative act in every sense of the word. We are not reproducing ourselves. We're making new people, as different from each other as they are from us. No matter how loving, fun, lively, active, faithful, or idyllic the household is, the people who emerge from it are going to be their own people. And yet, even this idea reflects culture and historical context that will feel very foreign to many Americans. When a child deconstructs or changes or abandons their faith, changes political parties, comes out, transitions, starts to process trauma, desires to be reunited with biological parents decades after adoption, or shifts in any other significant way, it can feel like rejection to their family members. These changes will probably involve a painful road for everyone. Abandoning or re-examining the fundamental identities of our childhoods is difficult emotional work made painful when our family members seem unable or even unwilling to support our journey perhaps because their own journeys have taken them in such different directions. As much as turning from home on any given topic can feel like failure, we hope to hold it as the natural evolution of human beings. If we are to continue to evolve, we need to allow those in our closest relationships to evolve as well. Our current state can become the focus of any evolution, but where we started is just as important. Seeing as clearly as we can where our family members started and how that set their expectations can help us see they might have a much harder road to walk before they can hear our perspectives with an open mind. Making the connection. If you're feeling strain in a relationship with a family member, it might be helpful to name the expectations you had for that person and what you've learned about them that disrupts those expectations. I had always imagined that my sister's wedding would look just like mine. I've learned that's not what she wants for life. That doesn't mean she's rejecting my path. She's just on her own. We dream that our son would love music the way our entire extended family does. But he's been telling us for a while that sports is where his passion lies. We've got to listen and let him lean into his own talents. 
I expected that my partner would practice our shared faith for the rest of his life. I've learned that he is more interested in developing a set of ethics that aren't connected to religion. It will be interesting to understand where we find common ground in our different approaches. Show up honestly. Understanding our expectations is essential. The next step is even harder. Living with our differences also requires a release of control. Take deep breaths, y'all. None of us are release of control experts. Learning to give other people space is a lifelong practice that allows more grace for others and, bonus, for ourselves. Releasing control is how we're able to love each other through deep division, especially as the world tells us that conflicting identities make us enemies. It's easy to hear the drumbeat of political messaging that tells us the other side is the enemy. But often the other side loves us dearly, and we them. So how could they be our enemy? To all the beautiful people who email us asking what to do about their loved ones who feel lost to internet conspiracies or political cults, we sometimes have to answer in a deeply unsatisfying way. The best thing is to stop doing and start being. We cannot turn our family members into projects. We cannot shame and judge them or ourselves into seeing the world as we see it, voting as we vote, and engaging as we engage. We do not choose our families. We can only choose how we interact with them. When there is love and safety, but serious disagreement, we can just keep showing up for each other lovingly anyway. We keep disagreeing, we go to the wedding, we send the birthday card, we organize the meal train during surgeries, we call, we text, we extend the dinner invitation. We have the political conversations and agree to talk again soon before moving on to when the next vacation is planned. Separating from each other in our families and homes reinforces each side's worst beliefs about the other. If you are in a relationship where you are safe and secure, by which we mean that your fundamental identity is not being attacked and you are not physically, emotionally, or financially threatened, it is worth considering how you can keep doing your work and showing up joyfully as your full self with your people. If you're not in a safe and secure relationship, please spend some time with us at the end of this book. We want to give you lots of resources, love, and encouragement. We learned from Dr. David Camp, a guest on our podcast, that staying in relationships where we are safe can help us be better allies. Dr. Camp is the founder and principal of the Dialogue Company and creator of the White Ally Toolkit. He told us that if you are white and want to be part of anti-racist work, you have enormous opportunities to influence other white people. America, he said, can be significantly more just if more white people merely acknowledge the reality of racism. That message can come through questions and connections, not just facts. People tend to double down on their beliefs when confronted with contrary facts. Dr. Camp urged us to educate through experiences, don't berate through facts. In order to invite that sense of connection through our experiences, we have to show up honestly. If we're hiding that we voted for the other party, that we changed denominations or left the church, or that we support a certain policy, we can't be in real relationships with our siblings, parents, and caregivers. We have to work toward a culture in our families of recognizing each person's birthright to have different ideas and habits from each other. We absolutely don't recommend that everyone agrees to disagree. Instead, we recommend showing our beliefs instead of telling them, and showing the joy that accompanies our beliefs. Healthy perspectives and the contentment that follow them are contagious, and where they aren't, sometimes we just have to let that be. 
We can't argue people out of the existences that they want, even when those existences seem to make them some flavor of miserable. But, 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 they live in an alternate reality. They're so negative. They adore this person I can't stand. They make decisions I don't understand at all. They say terribly hurtful things about people I love. These are real protests, and we respect them. We each have to weigh what we can handle in our lives carefully. We also have to know and be honest about the fact that deciding to be in long-term relationships of any kind, with anyone, for any reason, means signing up for some amount of hurt. We will all disappoint and be disappointed in every context, and sometimes that disappointment will fill us with grief. We want to be realistic. You might keep showing up patiently and lovingly for a lifetime and never feel that deep sense of connection you desire with your loved ones. For reasons as varied as the human experience, we have different capacities to love and connect with each other. Even in our most challenging familial relationships with people who rarely show love, affection, or even something approaching enthusiasm, we find that seeking that connection is worth our energy. We learn so much about ourselves in the process. We set an example for others, and we occasionally see glimpses of the other person that are beautiful. We also recognize that sometimes we cannot stay present with each other through deep division. Sometimes the presence of trauma, abuse, addiction, or discrimination requires us to part ways with our families of origin. We'll discuss this unbearable sadness at the end of the book, and we want you to know that if this is your reality, you are not alone. We don't have a magic formula for knowing when to keep working on relationships and families of origin and when to distance. We do know that the presence of sustained conflict within families over politics necessitates support from partners and friends, coaches, clergy, and many times from professional therapists. We think support from professionals is critically important. Whether we're remaining in strained relationships or exiting toxic ones, it's vital to incorporate those wounds into a larger understanding of ourselves. Analyzing the role expectations play in our families of origin is invaluable and can help us strengthen the connections in other areas of our lives as well. Moment of Hope We frequently talk about HBO's documentary The Vow about Nexium, a group that began by offering self-help courses and devolved into a misogynist cult. It depicts Katherine Oxenberg's persistent struggle to keep showing up for her daughter India, who became deeply immersed in Nexium to the point of isolation from her family. Catherine challenged India's perspective and fought to expose Nexium's conduct for years. She also loved India. She tried to call her daughter even when she wouldn't answer. Catherine responded anytime India reached out. She just kept being there, and eventually she and India meaningfully reunited. We love Catherine's example of lovingly showing up anyway. It's a reminder that even in extreme circumstances, where there is physical and psychological separation from each other, reuniting is an option. We also love that Catherine's example is both kind and honest. She neither shamed India nor endorsed Nexium. Her actions over a span of years said to her daughter, I love you. This is not good for you. It is not true. When you're ready to come home, I'm here. Now what? We know our podcast listeners love to keep asking hard questions, and that many of you do too. As you continue to shine a light on unexplored aspects of your family of origin, consider these questions. What's a historical event your parents experienced that's hard for you to fathom? 
What historical event shaped you of which your siblings or children will have no memory? Consider how you've observed conflict in your family. Who taught you how to have a fight and still love each other? How would your other family members answer that question? What are the unspoken rules about conflict in your family? Where have you made choices that are very different from your family? Did you move somewhere new? Become the first person in your family to attend college? Do you raise your children outside of a faith that was fundamental to your upbringing? How might your family be experiencing those choices? What are practical ways you can show up for a beloved family member in the midst of tension or conflict? Can you share a memory through a note or photo? Can you reconnect through a mutual interest in books or animals or a hobby? With whom in your family might you be able to discuss these questions? 